Hello and welcome to the Human Nurture Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Brand, and I know what you're thinking. Why is there an episode coming out now when it should be coming out at the first of the month? Well, the reason why is because this is a special bonus episode. Jeff Zeig was nice enough to join us, and he's going to talk about the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference held in December in Anaheim. It seemed like a perfect complement to this season, which is all about the underlying elements that make up the PACT approach to couples therapy. And not only are a lot of the underlying elements of PAC therapy represented at the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference, but the conference is really about how do we integrate, how do we learn new theories, how do we, as therapists, take all of the different streams that make up psychotherapy today, and how do we integrate them into our practice and have a cohesive understanding within ourselves of what kind of therapist we are and what kind of therapy we want to provide. So this is an interview with Jeff. He's great. Also listen to episode three. Coming up this month, in just a couple days, is going to be the episode on meditation with with George Haas, which um, I'm working on currently and will be out very soon. But this is about Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference coming up in December. Check it out. Hello and welcome to the Human Nurture Podcast. My name is Jason Brand and I'm the host. And today we have a special episode. This podcast is available on your podcasting stations and it can be found at humannurture.us.us. Today we are joined by Jeff Zeig, who's making a return visit. And uh, we're going to do something special today, which is we're going to talk about the evolution of psychotherapy conference. And um, as a note of introduction about Jeff, the joke last time was that saying um, all of his, his, what he does is exhausting. Um, and, for, uh, and so instead of getting into all of it, you can go back and listen to episode three. But the short version is that he's a master clinician, a publisher, writer, teacher, conference creator, and hoster. Uh, not only that, but he carries forward the tradition of psychotherapy um, and also establishes new ideas and territory. And one of the areas that we're going to be covering today is um, him as the creator, hoster, and carrier forward of the evolution, evolution of Psychotherapy Conference. So welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Great. Uh, so I thought we'd start. Um, I, I, I found um, some online, I found uh, some transcripts from the original conference in 85. And a, a lot of the questions seem to still apply today. Um, and so I thought I'd ask that. But first, um, can you set the stage for, for where this all started and, and um, sort of where the, the genesis of, of the conference comes from? Yeah, in around 1983, I hatched the idea that we could have a conference where we would bring together the titular leaders of different schools of psychotherapy, some of which, as I found out later, never met. And I started inviting people. We eventually had 26 stellar faculty members who represented the then major schools of psychotherapy, people including Carl Rogers and Bruno Bettelheim and R.D. Lang and from Family Therapy, Virginia Satir, Murray Bowen, Paul Watzlawick, Jay Haley, Chloe Madonnas, uh, the Virginia Satir. We had um, people from Transactional Analysis, Bob and Mary Goulding, Gestalt, Irvin Miriam Polster. It, it was a tremendous conference, a, a kind of an embarrassment of riches because we had one house in Phoenix, 
one roof in Phoenix under which these major theorists met and talked about their contributions to 20th century psychotherapy and created some pathways for developing psychotherapy into the 21st century. Mm. Why was this, why 85? I mean, what do you think? I mean, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but, but why did 85 end up becoming an important time? It, it wasn't intentional, but as it turned out, that was the 100th birthday of psychotherapy. In, uh, some historians said that psychotherapy began in 1885 when Freud first became interested in the psychological aspects of medicine. So we celebrated the centennial of psychotherapy in Phoenix in December of 1985. It was covered by Time magazine, by the New York Times, and also by the Los Angeles Times, among other media outlets. So it became quite an event that was not only for the psychotherapy culture, but also permeated into popular culture. And this was a small event, right? Like 20, 30 people? Right. We had about 7,200 people who came and the meeting sold out Labor Day. In early September, you couldn't get a ticket to a December conference. Wow. And and what do you, what do you make of that? I mean, why, why, why so many people trek to the desert to, to, uh, to come to, to this conference? Well, we psychotherapy has been a field in which we have heroes, people who really we, we really admire and we try to emulate in our own day-to-day approach to psychotherapy. And all of these people were there. And this was an opportunity to see them interact. It was a once-in-a-lifetime event. It was tabbed by one of the media outlets, the Woodstock of psychotherapy, because people came from really literally all over the world to spend five days with us at, uh, in Phoenix at the conference. Mm. And it, the idea behind this podcast is integrating in, um, sort of helping therapists to integrate in their their integrate themselves with all of the different strands of psychotherapy that we can choose from. And the quote that I found from the original conference was one from Lewis Wolberg is in conversation with Arnold Lazarus. And this is in 85. And he says, I'm wondering if there could be some suggestions, suggestions as to how to keep an open mind without getting befuddled um, from all the array of possibilities that psychotherapy presents. And I wonder how, how the conference does this and what you think about this question today. Sure. As in many fields, the early part of the development of the field has to do with divergence. And starting with Freud, there was a divergence of approaches to theory and practice of psychotherapy. And the first hundred years represents the development of different theories. So we had the psychoanalytic tradition, which developed in Europe and after World War II became implanted and developed in the United States. And then at the same time, we had the development of behavior therapy then the development of humanistic approaches, eventually the development of family therapy approaches, what I believe Milton Erickson represents, experiential approaches to psychotherapy, the uh, affective neurobiology approaches, and these are major tributaries in the development of psychotherapy. But starting, I think, in 1985, there was a movement more towards consilience. What are the underlying factors that make psychotherapy work across different schools of psychotherapy. And we know from more uh, 
uh, contemporary research that it's not so much about the technique. It's more about the person who is using the tool and that psychotherapy can be effective from the perspective of a psychoanalytic approach or from a behavioral approach or a cognitive behavioral approach. And a lot depends on the person who's using the tool, just as in surgery, the, the way in which the surgeon uses the scalpel will make, make a difference. And it's not uh, so much about the algorithmic approach that the technique represents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the, um, Wolberg, I just want to follow up on this one because he asked all these great questions. And one more that, um, that I liked was that he says, he says, um, what do they do? He says, what do they do to one's cherished approach? So what, so you go in, I imagine everybody's going to come to the conference with their own kind of, this is who I am. I'm a gestalt therapist. I'm a pack therapist. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I follow this school. How do you take your, how do you take your cherished approach and then begin to integrate other parts into it? And how, how, how would the conference help you to do that? Well, if you think about the cherished approach uh, idiom, it says something about our field, that this is, uh, in 85, it was a little bit like an ecumenical council where people were coming from different religious orientations mm-hmm. and they were staunch believers in their own religion. And it may be that in psychotherapy, having the uh, the conviction of your fantasies is better than having the convictions of your research or your 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 practice. And people are very religious about their repro- their approach. I know that the best approach for you is to see your family. I know that the best approach for you is to change your physical orientation in space. I know that the best approach for you is to examine your history. And the the certainty, the religious certainty of the therapist may be enough to carry the therapy and help the client to get out of a stuck spot into a more adaptive way of living. So there is some benefit to the, um, the religious attitude that people have. And once you become a convert to that religion, it's really difficult for you to shake your beliefs and look over the fence and see what's happening in another area. Now we hope that the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference does that. And even it has even happened among the faculty that at first the faculty were very staunch about presenting their way of doing psychotherapy, their approach to the clinical problems. But gradually they have become more interested in looking over the fence and sharing ideas and finding some commonalities that make psychotherapy work. Yeah. I, reading some of the early accounts, um, you know, there's, there's sort of fireworks that happen between like psychoanalysis and a more humanistic approach. Um, and it's fun to read. I mean, it makes for, it makes for, uh, uh, you know, sort of an interesting back and forth and, and there are a lot of fireworks there, but does that still happen or is, is, has, has that changed or evolved over the years? Well, it's great gossip. Um, one of the, and we, we've had fireworks that have happened because, uh, people's egos have gotten bruised or because people have stepped on their cherished, um, uh, footprints that they've made in in the field of psychotherapy, but um, the the essence of that is that we have we I think the evolution conferences has established a movement towards integration, and we may have theoretical certainty uh, about what it 
what is necessitated to understand human nature, but we can have uh, an, a, an eclectic integrative practice where we bring together ideas from different approaches. Well, the idea is to help the client as quickly as possible. Jay Haley wisely intoned, psychotherapy is a problem. Hmm. That's the problem. The problem is the person's in therapy. The solution is get the person out of therapy, living life independent of therapy as quickly as possible. And uh, that's really what we want to do is to uh, find ways of being effective in our practice. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess the, the question is, I mean, you've watched, this, you've watched this evolve over the last 35 years. How far have we come? I mean, do you have, what's your, what's your opinion, your, your outlook on that? Well, when you consider that the people who research different schools of psychotherapy have found that there are hundreds of schools of psychotherapy, there are some major approaches that we try to represent, major personalities, really, that we represent at the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference. But uh, we've made baby steps towards this idea of technical eclecticism, technical integration. And uh, when you think about it, a lot of psychotherapy is based on integration. Even cognitive behavior therapy is the originally the application of behavior techniques to cognitions. And that uh, involved uh, a radical approach from people like Beck and people like Ellis, but uh, eventually has been accepted as more of the mainstream of practice. As you you know from our last interview, my my own contribution is about integrating things from art mm-hmm. and understanding that art is a form of communication and it's an evocative form of communication that's meant to help people to get conceptual realizations and that we can take from art things that will help us to uh, empower clients to alter concepts that don't work and create and uh, create states and identities that do work by looking at some of the structure of art. So psychotherapy can integrate not only from things within the field, but also things from outside of the field. Linguistics, communication theory, uh, uh, systems theory, these are things that have been brought into psychotherapy that have helped psychotherapy to evolve. And even in fields like uh, family therapy, when I grew up in the field in the 70s and early 80s, the the differences in family therapy schools were really front and center stage, but now there's been more of an integration and so there's not as much separation in the field of family therapy as as has existed 35 years ago. Yeah, and you know, one thing I, at these at comparing the the original conferences to today's conference, I mean, you know, you had these names like Virginia Satir, Carl Rogers, Carl Whitaker. I mean, these these giants in the field, right? Um, and do you think we'll ever see those kind of those kind of luminaries again in in the field of psychotherapy? Will that will that happen, or is it happening now in your mind? I, I don't think so. Because like medicine, people have become specialized and the amount of information, the content that's available is really difficult to master. There could have been someone in the 80s whose scope could contain the entire field of family therapy. But as you know, one of the things that I practice and teach is hypnosis. And I actually am in Mexico at this moment where I have a class that starts tomorrow where I'm 
teachings about hypnosis, but I can't even, I can't keep up on all of the literature, all of the research, all of the content. That's a, so it's hard to find somebody. We, we've become more specialized. So specialization, like Vessel van der Kock specializing in trauma, and uh, it's hard to have someone whose scope is uh, in depth is great enough to span an entire uh, discipline in the field of psychotherapy. So no, I, I don't see people who are up and coming who have got that incredibly gigantic reputation like people like Carl Rogers or um, Tim Beck or uh, Joseph Wolpe, they're, um, they're, they're, they don't seem to be emerging, at least in my myopic view of the field of psychotherapy. I, I hardly call it myopic, but, um, but uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Sure. Okay, great. The um, I, question I got is, um, you know, I think one one thing that I've heard you really make the case for is is more eclecticism in in clinicians, um, and one thing that I've noticed is that in order for for a clinician at my stage in development, it was very necessary to pick something to specialize in. That that was a necessary component because there's so much to choose from, and so I wonder if if for me the the path has been pick something. And then once you kind of get settled in it, then, then eclecticize, if that's a word. Um, but, but what do you think about that way of, of conceptualizing kind of um, how, uh, uh, a way to navigate all of, all of this? Yeah, a lot depends on how you go to graduate school and what's being taught there and what's imprinted. And you're learning a particular approach and a, a lot depends on your predilection. Oh, wow, you know, I like the Monet, but I don't like the Manet as much. And oh, I think Monet is the better artist and I'll follow Monet. And so we, we tend to pick somebody to follow. When my In my own history in the 1970s, I found Bob and Mary Goulding and I immersed myself in transactional analysis. And that became a bedrock theory about human behavior and I could build on that and it was a time in my life that I thought that I would be a transactional analysis forever. Actually, I started with Rogers even before that in the late 1960s when I was in, introduced to empathic listening skills and I thought for that time Rogers would be my hero and my guide and I would build on being an empathic psychotherapist and eventually I hooked on Milton Erickson but Erickson was a person who didn't have an, an overt theory of personality to build on. Remember that Freud started with a theory of personality and then the technique of intervention derived from the theory of personality. And then you had somebody like Milton Erickson who didn't have an overt theory of personality and uh, but had a uh, armamentarium of heuristic approaches to how to make psychotherapy uh, brief and effective. So it's a good thing. And what you're saying makes sense to me. Uh, find somebody who speaks intelligently to your style. Milton Erickson's anecdotal style, his evocative style, spoke strongly to me. And uh, I could intrigue myself because I was a more mathematically oriented person, more of a linear person. And then when 
I walked around the rooms at the first evolution of psychotherapy conference, and I saw that there were people who were highly structured, perhaps like Tim Beck or Albert Ellis. And then I walked into a room where there was R.D. Lang or Virginia Satir or um, Carl Whitaker, and I saw that there were people who were leading with their right hemisphere. And I said, okay, I think I'm going to be a switch hitter now, and I'm going to go over to the other side and try to learn about approaches that were more intuitive, improvisational, more right hemisphere approaches. And I remember the moment and from the 1985 conference, and that was instrumental in my building development. But yes, I was starting, as you said, with a specific approach and at that time identified as an Ericksonian. I don't even identify myself that way anymore. Mm -hmm. I identify myself as an integrative experiential psychotherapist. And, uh, but it was a very good foundation. And we stand on the shoulders of our forebearers generationally. Uh, as human beings, we stand on the shoulders of the pain and totally the accomplishments of our forebearers, and we do the same thing in our profession. We stand on the shoulders of the people who had to swim upstream to develop their approach in opposition to the prevailing culture mm-hmm. and now eventually become mainstream. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, before I, I want to cut to 2020 in a minute, but but before we do that, any any anecdotes, good stories, things that come to mind about the you know the, the first 35 years of this conference that really stand out in, as as emblematic of of what of what you guys of what you're up to in creating it, and uh, any ideas, any thoughts there. Well, I remember the first faculty meeting in 1985. I had a suite at the hotel and we hosted the faculty to meet prior to the initiation of the conference. And I watched this then 83-year-old Carl Rogers, who was the oldest member of the faculty at the time, went I was 38, I was the youngest member of the faculty, and he walked over to 78-year-old Joseph Wolpe, and they said to each other that they had never met before. So you had the titular leader of behavior therapy and the titular leader of humanistic therapy, and they never encountered each other before. Mm. And, and, you know, then I remember bringing Viktor Frankl to the 1990 Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference, and this is like, you know, it would be like walking with a rock star, like walking with Madonna, where mm. people just wanted to touch that, uh, Victor Frankl or get a lock of a piece of fallen hair. Or <laughs> he was so beloved and got a five-minute standing ovation before he spoke and another standing ovation after he spoke. And, and we're walking across from the convention center to the hotel, and he says to me, uh, Dr. Zeig, what could I have done to do a better job? Unbelievable. Uh, you know, so much humility, and uh, I, I, was, I was dumbfounded. I, I, I didn't have anything intelligent to say to that. And, uh, and so you come to the conference not only because you want to educate yourself, but psychotherapists need input. We need to be inspired. We need to feel enthusiastic about going into the consulting room. And when you go to the conference, which is an embarrassment of riches because you walk into a session, if you don't happen to like it, you walk out, you go to another session, and uh, you can feel the passion 
of these experts who are still passionate. And we have non-degenerians, 90-year-old people who are on the faculty and they're still passionate about psychotherapy and they're passionate about learning. Well, yeah, if you're a 13-year-old gymnast, it might be time to retire. But for psychotherapists, this is a lifelong occupation where you can continue to grow, develop, learn, improve yourself, improve your approach to patients. And that's one of the joys about being in the field of psychotherapy. Mm. Oh, God. There must be all these. It like, sounds like a lot of pinch yourself moments. Like, is this really happening? Especially because so much of what we do happens in private, you know, that, that either in the privacy of our own minds as we're reading and reflecting on these things, or in the privacy of the consulting room, that all of a sudden you're around the living, breathing person who, who created or is, is the, or is carrying forward um, these, these very important theories and, and ideas. And they're available. When Irv Yalom speaks at the conference and provides a keynote in the evening, we have to have a special book signing for him, a private book signing. Now, there, there, there can be a kilometer of people who are lined up to get their books signed by Irv Yalom, and he stays until the very end, and he signs every single book and greets any of the people who want to say hello to him, and that's not just Irv Yalom. We find an incredibly cordial faculty that are human beings with human interest and see other people not as students or functions, but as people who they can be with and uh, and and it so it turns out that the uh, integration with the faculty and the students are uh, something that is really transcendent and inspiring yeah it's funny i mean i'm just thinking about it from an outside perspective it must sound pretty weird to to hear you know that that therapists feel this sort of sort of devotion and and level of connection to these clinicians but then from the inside um, there is a way that, that this is, it's not only is it meaningful in terms of self-discovery, but it's also meaningful in terms of making the work go in a different direction, helping people. So I, I get it, it, it but it, it's funny to think about, uh, I mean, that, that, that tagline of the Woodstock of psychotherapy, it was great marketing. And at the same time, it's like, wow, it must take people by surprise that 7,000 people are coming out for something like this. Yeah, we've had as many as 8,600 come to the evolution conference and uh, at this recording at the end of february in 2020 without even advertising a program just the brand we have more than 3000 paid registrants right now i have no idea how this december conference will grow and it might be the largest of any of the evolution of psychotherapy conference in history because it's become iconic people just want to know that they've been there and people really come 40 different 50 different countries that people will come and spend a week with us in in anaheim so that's great so it's december 9th through 13th um the super rate saver rate ends april 17th so we're we're i mean we still got a little time but we're coming up on that it's in anaheim i understand that there's a day before and a day after do you want to talk a little bit about what that is yeah we have a pre-conference day and for example i'm doing one of the pre-conferences on the evolution of psychotherapy where i'll show clips that are in the Erickson Foundation archive. You can see a little clip of uh, Carl, Carl Whitaker, a little clip of Milton Erickson, a little clip of James Masterson. And you can uh, have an, um, an opportunity to see some of our forebearers and understand how we can take 
methodology that was state of the art in the 20th century and spruce it up a little bit so it becomes more fashioned to the 21st century culture. But we also have a, a, a pre-conference on ethics, a pre-conference on hypnosis, a pre-conference on psychopharmacology for therapists, a pre-conference on neurobiology. We've had some stellar pre-conferences in previous meetings. Uh, Patch Adams did a pre-conference for us. We've had Andrew Weil, who did a pre-conference. This coming year, we have Dan Amen, who's doing a pre-conference on uh, neuro neurobiology, what therapists need to know about the brain in order to improve their practice. So that's a, a marvelous event. The pre-conference and the post-conference, the original idea was that because people come from so many different countries and they want to get as much education as possible while they're in the United States. So we added these pre-conference and post-conference days. The post-conference is a very special event. I just did a four-day workshop in Mexico called a masterclass, which is limited to 12 students. And and over four days, one role each day, the students are either a patient for me with a real problem, a patient for a peer with a real problem, mm. a, a therapist for a peer, and a supervisor under my supervision. And this masterclass is living therapy. So we're not teaching techniques or research or theory. You develop yourself as a therapist by living the role of being a patient or a therapist or a supervisor under my supervision. And we have held at Erickson Foundation conferences, post-conference masterclasses, and I rotate the faculty. So Bill O'Hanlon could be a, a co-teacher co with me, Stephen Gilligan, Irv Polster, Michael Yapko. And in that post-conference masterclass, I see a client, and in this case, in December, Stephen Gilligan will comment. Stephen Gilligan will see a client, somebody from the audience. I'll comment, and then we'll repeat that process in the afternoon. And for those diehard psychotherapy aficionados that like to see how people approach clinical situations from different perspectives, it's been a marvelous class. Mm, it, it sounds intense and it sounds very cool. Um, the Let's cut to the conference part. Who are you most excited about? What should people be excited about in terms of what's happening in the conference this year? It, again, it's such an embarrassment of riches. And uh, if you you know, want to see um, people disagree about different theories about post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, we have the main people, the, the main contributors to post-traumatic stress disorder, and they may argue about theoretical points about what is your entryway into helping people with PTSD, but there's a very collegial atmosphere and we all need to know something about how to work with PTSD. But if we also need to know how to work with families and how to work with couples. So you have John Gottman and Harriet Lerner and Michelle Wiener Davis and Ellen Bader and uh, um, Sue Johnson and Chloe Madonna's, John Gottman, John and Julie Gottman. Uh, and they're all available to you and they're teaching you about couples therapy. But what happens to me, literally, is this becomes my way of educating myself. So because we audio record all of the sessions, 
after the conference, it, it takes me most of a year to go through these audio recordings and I listen to them and I continue to learn and to develop myself, who I am as a, as a therapist by integrating ideas and concepts from other therapists. To me, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a banquet table. And, uh, you know, with, at the first conferences, uh, I was young and I was naive and I was just so eager to learn just as a, a point of gossip now that I'm thinking about the story. One of the people I was most enthusiastic about meeting was Artie Lang. Mm -hmm. And I, I had seen him speak once in the 70s when he was lecturing in Berkeley and I thought it was a remarkably interesting speech. And he was talking about visiting a schizophrenic family and that the schizophrenic was upstairs in a bedroom having hallucinations, but the parents were downstairs in front of a box that had images and sounds that were coming out of it, and they were equally mesmerized by watching television compared to the schizophrenic who was creating his own show. <laughs> and, and it was a marvelous, ironic comparison and depathologizing some of the schizophrenic processes, which of course R.D. Lang was wont to do. So, okay, I'm going to the airport to pick up R.D. Lang. Uh, and I, I, I go to the Phoenix airport and there's R.D. Lang and he comes out of the gate and I introduce myself and I say, you know, well, can, should we go pick up your luggage? And he didn't have any luggage. Two days before this monumental event in my professional personal life and I'm driving Artie Lang to the uh, uh, to, to, to the, the to the tailors to find clothes that he wear for the conference that's great uh, and, uh, and he did a, a marvelous demonstration we brought one of my colleagues was able to get a quote-unquote severely disturbed client for Artie Lang to see and we uh, established a, a closed circuit television broadcast into the largest meeting room, which was a, a, a meeting hall with bleachers. It was just a, a place where you could have a, 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 a gigantic convention, but it was not a meeting room. It was an exhibit hall with bleachers. And uh, R.D. Lang saw the client in this closed circuit television television broadcast and then eventually had such good rapport that they brought the client out on the stage and it was a, a remarkable con uh, like it's just joining into the uh, dissociative uh, uh, um, irregular process of the client and I remember how staunchly Salvador Mnuchin stood up from the audience and defended uh, R.D. Lang and what Lang was doing it was a it was a great moment, and it's still one of the few demonstrations that we have of R. D. Lang, who was uh, actually working with the client. Wow, wow! And um, it, so, so if I want, if this is actually going to be my first time attending, um, and I'm looking for kind of um, you know, I, I, I'm looking for experiential workshops, learning theory, and a dialogue between experts of different of different schools. Um, can I get that at the conference? Absolutely. So faculty members can use whatever format they best think will 
be uh, available to them to present their work. So people do workshops and three hour workshops on a specific topic, like Donald Meichenbaum might be doing something on his approach to post-traumatic stress disorder and his work with uh, the Melissa Institute. And um, John Gottman may be talking about with his wife, and Julie may be talking about their latest uh, contributions in their latest research to couples. So the workshops are where you can immerse yourself intensely with one of the faculty. But then there are dialogues, great conversations, where two faculty may be paired to talk about differences in their approaches or commonalities. And then there are topical panels. We, we've had uh, topical panels on uh, schizophrenia, for example, or on working with depression. And to my own embarrassment, I can remember one topical panel that I put together on human sexuality with four octogenarian males. <laughs> I don't know how I did that, but <laughs> I, I did. So, And then we have conversation hours. So these are a free... Uh, uh, these are open events where you can um, talk with Bessel van der Kock about his research with post-traumatic stress disorder and what is he doing and what does he know about the use of psychedelics to help people who have been traumatized. Mm. And uh, then we have keynote speeches. Oh my God. So uh, for the longest period of time, the most desired Faculty, the most desired keynote speaker, because every one of the faculty is a keynote speaker. And so we bring in keynote speakers from outside of the field. And I have been so avid and about contacting Noam Chomsky and trying to get him to make an appearance at one of our conferences. And I have never been successful, hmm. but he's always written back the most delightfully charming personalized letters explaining that he just can't do it and finally i uh, asked him if he would do a video dialogue with me about the intersection of linguistics and psychotherapy and uh. and social movements so oh, i'm so enthusiastic about the possibility in december of having a dialogue with noam chomsky and then uh, i had interviewed alanis morissette Mm -hmm. um, at the 2013 conference, and she's uh, agreed and we're working out the arrangements that I can do another interview with her. And then I invited a singular genius, Rob Capolo, who's a composer oh, right. and a music historian and a conductor. And he came to the 2017 conference and talked about listening, the art of listening, mm -hmm. and that when we can learn the grammar of music, for example, from Alanis and, for example, from Rob, we can learn about the grammar of music. Music is communication. Psychotherapists, they should be experts at communication. Well, music can teach us something about being better communicators. The grammar of music, the composition of music, the enjoyment of music, the appreciation of music, all of these things can teach us to be better at our craft. So I often invite keynote speakers from outside the field. But this time we also have John and Julie Gottman as keynote speakers, Martin Seligman as a keynote speaker, Phil Zimbardo, who's been a, a mainstay at the Ericsson conferences, speaking about 
the intersection between social and clinical psychology, and Irv Yalom, of course, as a, as a keynote speaker. And I'll dialogue for a while with Irv Yalom about his approaches to group therapy, existential therapy. Yeah. And then Irv will do a reading from one of his latest books. Cool. And I saw Jack Cornfield is on there. Jack Cornfield is on there too, um, as just a, di as a yeah. diverse voice. One of the most popular of our speakers speaking about his Buddhist approach to, to psychotherapy and being, and you can see that meditation really works because he's a living example of uh, being what it is that he's teaching. Yeah. And it brings up the question for me of, of diversity. I mean, you look back at the, the pictures, all these great photos of, you know, like 85 and then the next years and the next years. And it's all, it's all pretty much white people. Um, what are we going to do about getting, getting more diversity into this field? And it's not just about the conference. This is a bigger question about the field. Yeah. Well, diversity, the, 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 the um, diversity lobby is important and it's not just lobbying for the sake of lobbying it's an important message uh, milton erickson before diversity was such a mainstream topic in psychotherapy was advising his students that they should all learn about anthropology they should know something about different cultures and it should be a mainstay in psychotherapy education and certainly Erickson with his interaction with both Gregory Bateson and Margaret Mead was somebody who could uh, appreciate anthropology and an understanding of the way in which culture affects personality and the way in which we can approach the clinical task through a cultural lens. So yes, we have a keynote on uh, multicultural approaches and also uh, workshops on multicultural approaches, but the, 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 the field looks back on forebearers from the 20th century. And so we have not, um, we, we've paid attention to the importance of representing culturally informed approaches to psychotherapy, and we have a keynote on the topic and also uh, programs within the conference about multicultural approaches, but it's, 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 it's a, a limitation of format that we can't possibly represent all of the approaches that deserve to be represented in contemporary psychotherapy and have made their mark upon the evolution of the field. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, okay, well, as we begin to wrap up here, um, any final thoughts about how to get the most out of the conference for people who are returning or coming for the first time? Well, there's a lot of returns that are coming to the conference because they know what a special event it is. And the um, my advice is to choose things that are less central to your ecumenical approach to psychotherapy and look over on the other side of the fence and see what people are doing. If you're a uniquely individual therapist, go to the array of couples therapists that we have and learn something about the way in which systems affect individuals, that you don't just need to change the thinking, feeling, and behavior of an, or perception of an individual, but you can also recognize the way in which environmental influences can 
can be used to inform psychotherapy. Cultural influences can be used to inform psychotherapy. So yes, we hope that attendees will not just uniquely cloister themselves within the approaches that they already know, they certainly have that opportunity if they want it, but that they can look and see what's going on on uh, uh, the uh, the artificial turf is green on the other side of the fence too. So, you know, go over the other side of the fence and see what other people are doing because we just want to be better therapists. You know, I, I go to conferences, I go to workshops because I have some clients that I just, I don't know what to do with these people. And am I going to find something when I go to the conference? It's going to help me to work with people with whom I've been stuck before. And you'll find the ability to do that at the Evolution Conference. And it will be, um, I guarantee that it'll be a remarkable event that will fill you with education and inspiration that you can use to continue to develop your practice throughout uh, the next coming years. Mm. Well, you got me excited. I really appreciate the time, Jeff. It's so fun talking to you. And, um, and you know, if we don't talk sooner, I, I look forward to seeing you in December. I'll be glad to meet you personally in December. You do a fabulous interview and thank you so much. You've really researched and you know what you uh, are targeting before we get on the line. And I do very much appreciate that. Well, I, and I appreciate the stories and, um, and just the general vibe of, of this being kind of an easy conversation. So, so thank you. And uh, we'll see you next time. A pleasure.